The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, I have in my life the privilege of having worshipped all over the world in local churches. I've been to many places in the world. And it's been an incredible blessing to me, a rich blessing to be able to see what our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing in local churches all over the world. My first mission trip was in 1986 in Kenya. And uh, I'll never forget worshiping in the Rift Valley, a very hot valley in the center of Kenya, with a, a tribe of Maasai people. They were converts from the Maasai tribe. The Maasai were some of the most hostile to British rule. And they fought the British right to the end uh, when the British finally gave uh, uh, the country over to the Kenyans. And so they're very hostile to the West, very hostile to the gospel, but a small number of them had been brought to faith in Christ and they were worshiping under a tree. And we were sitting on these wooden benches worshiping. I'll never forget it. And then the next summer when I was in Pakistan, we worshiped with a very small handful of converts uh, from the Muslim faith from Afghanistan that had fled the Russians and we were going back to some of the refugee camps on the border in, in Peshawar, Pakistan to minister to them. Very small group of people. But it was amazing that there even were any at all. When you think about the hostility of Afghan uh, Muslims to the gospel. To see some of them come to faith in Christ and be able to worship uh, with them. Incredible. I remember going with Ron Halbrooks to Shanghai and worshiping in a high-rise building there in this sprawling Chinese city. 24 million people live in Shanghai. And uh, we had spent the day traveling, or the day before Saturday, traveling on the railway system there. And I felt we could travel on that railway for a month and not cover the same track. It just went on forever. I've never felt so small. And then we went up, I don't know, remember the floor, but it was really high up. And we went in and there was a small cell church there, a dozen people, maybe more, in folding chairs. And we were listening to worship songs on, I think, a cassette tape player. And we were just singing and after it was over, we were fellowshipping, and I was looking out over the balcony at Shanghai. This tiny, tiny little cell church with a heart for their city. The largest assembly I've ever preached to was in Pune, India, maybe a little less than 5,000 people. And that was a huge number for me. But then you realize that the population of Pune is 3 million. The church that Christy and I served in Tokushima in Japan was the smallest church I've ever preached to on a Sunday morning. Uh, there were eight people. I don't know if that was including Christy and I, our two kids, or not. I don't remember. But maybe five or six or seven other than us. That was the smallest church I've ever preached to on a Sunday morning. And I've had the privilege of ministering all over the world to Christian congregations of various sizes. But I've noticed that in every place, the church is outwardly, visibly unimpressive. Uh, outwardly, it seems insignificant to the surrounding culture, the surrounding city. seems to be drowned by its non-Christian setting all over the world. The church seems to be dwarfed by the world of unbelievers. After 2,000 years of the powerful advance of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, now heading toward the ends of the earth under the powerful guidance of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The church is still in so many places, really at some level you could say in every place, weak, unimpressive, small, in every locality where it gathers. And this is a challenge to our faith. If Jesus Christ really is God, if he really is the only begotten Son of God, if he really is the only Savior of the world, then why is his church so unimpressive after 2,000 years? Why so small? Why so weak? Why so flawed and so hindered by sin? And this is especially, I think, an acute problem for cross-cultural missionaries who have left everything. They've made great sacrifices. They're, they're going to serve Christ in challenging 
locations, just like we saw in the video, saying goodbye to a comfortable Western lifestyle. Uh, they settle into a whole new and much more difficult pattern of life in some distant location, a third world city maybe, or Muslim uh, a capital city in a Muslim country, or near a refugee tent city, or in some remote mountainous location. And they learn the language and the culture. They slowly build relationships with the people. After a couple of years, they've got a handful of people that are marginally interested in their message. One guy that they met with last week who's interested and might want to meet with them again. That's what's going on all over the world. And it's so easy to become discouraged at the outwardly unimpressive progress of the gospel and the display of the local church. Even more troubling... When you become a member of a local church and you start to get to know the people, they're kind of unimpressive too. Actually, they're kind of impressive in the fact that they're so imperfect. And the church is divided and there's struggles and there's sin. And it's like, wow, this is it. This is the church. And so I think we need God to give us a vision of the church in all of its glory. Of all of its radiant perfection when all is said and done. And I think no book of the Bible does that better than the book of Revelation. And we have it in this very famous passage in Revelation 7. And we have it even better at the end of this book in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to see the bride of Christ fully dressed for her wedding day. Descending from heaven glorious and beautiful. And we need that vision. And we need it from the book of Revelation. Now the word revelation means an unveiling. A pulling back of the veil so that we can see something that was hidden before. What is unveiled in Revelation? Well, first and foremost, we have unveiled for us the glorious Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see him unveiled. We see him glorious. We see him moving through the seven golden lampstands representing local churches. And we see him ministering to them. And he's radiant and glorious and powerful. And we see also unveiled the throne of God, almighty God, seated on his throne, ruling heaven and earth. And what else is unveiled? We have the future unveiled, and especially as this book is going to progress, we're going to see the wrath of God poured out on the, on the rebellious nations of the world. And that's coming very soon. But what is finally unveiled is the church of Jesus Christ. The glory of the redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the unveiling is the climax of the Bible. And the fulfillment will be the climax of history. Now when I was growing up, every year we watched a movie called The Wizard of Oz. Some of you might have seen that movie. I found it terrifying and creepy when I was a kid. You remember the flying monkeys and all that? And uh, the whole thing. And I've watched it with new eyes and it's even creepier actually. Um, There's just so many odd aspects to that movie. But at the kind of the climax of the movie, uh, Dorothy and her three, three fan, friends, the, uh, the Tin Man, the, the uh, Scarecrow, and the Lion, are standing before the great Oz. And there's this terrifying big voice as they've come back. They finally killed the Wicked Witch of the West and they have her, her broom and they are ready to receive from the Wizard of Oz what he promised to give them, help for each of them on their quests. But again, he defers them, says, go away and come back tomorrow. And they're very discouraged. Toto, the little dog, runs up and pulls the, the curtain back. Remember this? And there's this little old guy speaking with this big voice into this microphone. And he suddenly realizes that he's been unveiled. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You remember that? And they're like, but they're not deceived by this at all. You're a humbug, they said. You're a fraud. And so he was. You're like, what does that have to do with the book of Revelation? I'll tell you in just a moment, all right? Because the exact opposite thing is going to happen when we finally die and go to heaven. When we see what this book is talking about, the effect will be infinitely the opposite direction. We are going to realize how greatly we underestimated Almighty God in His glory. And how greatly we underestimated His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how greatly we underestimated the glory of His church. And how beautiful she's going to be when she is finally perfected. 
the effect will be exactly the opposite. We have underestimated the greatness of all this. Now, I think we need this vision. If we're going to be faithful in the great commission that God has given to us, we need to be reminded again and again that we are going to win. It's going to be successful because it is so outwardly unimpressive. And so we have the command of God in the great commission. All right, we're told in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 24, 14 tells us that the preaching will actually happen. We have a prophecy. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So the mission actually is going to be uh, accomplished. It's going to be finished. But will it be successful? And the answer overwhelmingly in both the Old Testament prophets and here in Revelation 7 is absolutely yes. The preaching of the gospel is going to be overwhelmingly successful. And that's what we're going to look at. Now let's get some context here in Revelation 7. I've been out of the pulpit for about five or six weeks. And we were right in the middle of Revelation 7 as I was going. And we've come to this magnificent passage, which I think I've quoted probably dozens and dozens of times in various sermons over the years. But now I get to preach on it in a pattern exegetical way. And I'm so excited. We're right in the middle of Revelation 7, so I want to do a little bit of context. Revelation 7 is an interruption right in the middle of the breaking open of the seven seals in the scroll that was taken from the right hand of Almighty God by Christ. So we're right in the middle of the breaking of the seven seals. And so this is an interlude. Revelation 7 is a glorious, a majestic interlude in the midst of the breaking open of the seven seals. Well, what is that about? We have to go back to the beginning of the book and let me just give you a quick review. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos. He's there for the preaching of the word of God and the testimony of Christ. And uh, he has a vision on the island of Patmos, first of Christ, but then of an open door, a door standing open in heaven. And he hears the voice of Almighty uh, of Christ telling him to come up and go through that doorway. Which he does by the power of the Spirit. And as he goes through the doorway, he sees the throne of Almighty God. And there's this concentric circles, these concentric circles of worship. And they're praising God for his creation. And they worship him. You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So that's Almighty God seated on his throne. In Revelation 5, we have in the right hand of Almighty God on His throne a scroll sealed with seven seals. And a proclamation goes out saying, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? But no one is found who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And John weeps, but he's told, do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is able to take the scroll and open its seals. And then when he does so... They worship and they praise God. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests and they will serve our God and they will reign on earth. Now in Revelation 6, Jesus commences to break open the seals. The first four seals that he breaks open unleash what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these horsemen ride across and effects happen on earth. A a false peace, it seems. And then there's uh, war and famine and death. And then with the breaking of the fifth seal, you have these, um, uh, the souls of those who have been slain, these martyrs who are crying out for vengeance. They're crying out for justice under the throne of God in heaven. Then the sixth seal is broken. And with the sixth seal comes, it seems in symbolic language, the end of the physical universe. Every mountain and island is removed from its place. And the stars fall from the sky down to the earth. And the people on the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, are screaming and running and trying to find refuge. They're trying to find a place where they can escape the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And so they call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now I want that question just burn in your mind because I really think Revelation 7 is the answer to that question. 
It's like, all right, all right, we're going to take a break in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, and we're going to answer that vital question. Who is going to be able to stand when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth? And that, this is a glorious interlude, a glorious interruption. It really is the point of everything. The redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation, including the Jews. As the scripture says, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And so we have this vision, which I talked about last time, of the, of the 144,000 that were sealed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are listed there of the sons of Israel. And so we went through that. I'm not going to go into those details, but you have that very Jewish picture of salvation there. And now we move to the text that we're looking at today. Now look at it beginning at verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They are wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. Now the 144,000 are sealed and protected from the judgments that come on the earth. It's an earthly protection. But this multitude is more of a heavenly reward image. Earthly protection and then heavenly reward. That's the, you have a picture here. And unlike the 144,000, this number is so vast that it cannot be counted. No human being can count it. And the redeemed, we're told, come from every nation, tribe, people, and language. These are the various divisions of, of the human race... ...on planet Earth, or, or distinctives, or descriptors, or different ways of describing people. Now obviously all of these distinctions arose after the flood of Noah, biblically. Because at that time, obviously, every uh, human being on Earth was descended from one man, from Noah. Just as earlier we could say, ultimately, every human being has come from Adam. And so the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17.26... From one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's an incredibly important verse. Acts 17, 26. So from one man, Adam, also Noah, came all of these nations, these distinctions. And God in his sovereignty, in his providential control of history has ordained that people live in different places all over the world. They are the ones we are commanded to go find and proclaim the gospel. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So they're scattered all over by the will and the providence of God. Biblically, how it happened is after the Tower of Babel, when they were making this tower to make a name for themselves so they would not be scattered over the earth, this arrogant, boastful effort... God confused the languages and the people began to separate and move out. The sons of Noah uh, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And their sons settled in different places on the earth. So they would settle perhaps in secluded mountain valleys like we saw in the video. Or distant plains, grasslands. Some of them became nomadic. Some settled down in other areas near fertile rivers uh, where they could uh, plant crops. Others settled on the distant coastlands. Some became maritime peoples that made boats and they went out to the islands. And so people scattered all over the entire surface of the globe. And they settled there. And as they settled, they developed their own language. And their own culture, their dialects, customs, patterns of life, technologies. And so we have these distinctions. So nation. From every nation will come redeemed people. The word nation you could think of perhaps as a political division. So like boundaries on a map, that kind of thing. You could think of it that way. A nation state with a unified government and an army and uh, all of that. that uh, that's one way to look at nation. There are other ways to look at the word nation, but that's one way. And then there's the word tribe. That would be like genetic uh, divisions that come from uh, having a human ancestor. Just like Noah and Shem, Ham and Japheth. But there's this idea of a tribe. So it would be a group that would follow in a family, but then a multiply, multiply with extended family. Descendants from a common ancestor. And then people, you could... There's a lot of different ways of looking at that word, but you could think about cultural distinctions, different cultures, perhaps the way they dress, the way they cook, the way they build their buildings, their architecture, their poetry, their songs, the way that they express themselves when they're happy, when they're sad, various cultural aspects. 
And then language, obviously, the way they speak. Very much tied into us being created in the image of God is the ability to speak, to uh, communicate abstract ideas by language. And human beings all over the world have this gift, this ability, because we're all created in the image of God. But there are so many languages. I think Wycliffe Bible Translators estimates 6,700 different languages, maybe 6,800, 6,800 languages. Earlier, um, a, a number of weeks ago, Drew Most preached here, and he is working with Wycliffe Bible Translators, he and Emily, and their team there in Cameroon, trying to bring one of the 6,700 languages, um, bring the New Testament to that language, or actually a handful of languages they're working on. So that's what we mean by every tribe, language, people, and nation. The vision of God is that some from every possible human distinction and connection will be represented in heaven as trophies of God's sovereign grace. It's magnificent. Out of the churning mass, the complex mass of the sea of humanity, God by his gospel will call the elect. He knows who they are. We can't see who they are ahead of time, but he knows. And they will survive the great tribulation of human history. They will come out of that and be redeemed. This is the sure and certain vision of the success of the Great Commission. And I tell you, we, we have to keep this image uploaded in our minds constantly, lest we become discouraged in evangelism and missions. So they are described in this way. Their ethnic distinctives perhaps are obvious in the vision to John. I don't know how. It says they are dressed in white. So I don't know that they had very... You know, different colors of their outfits. It seemed like they didn't, but maybe they had a different cut of cloth or something like that. Maybe their headdresses were different. Uh, maybe they still retained genetic differences in their facial uh, structures or skin color or something like that. Don't really know. Maybe it's one of those things you just know. Like in a dream, you know, you just know. They're from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And John just knew that. But I think it's reasonable to assume that they retain their genetic distinctions, their, their amoral distinctives in heaven. Because why, then, why would God do it? And I think there's so much, so much of a beautiful, glorious story to be told. More on that in a minute. This is a large part of the glory and the achievement of the cross. That people from such widely varying backgrounds all believe in the same Jesus, worship the same Jesus, fall down and give the same Jesus credit for their salvation in the exact same way. To me, it's one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Christianity. And the text says that they are standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So here at last you have the sweet and awesome answer to the question. Who is able to stand when the hurricane of God's wrath comes sweeping through? Who is going to be able to stand? These will be able to stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. And they stand, that standing is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of vindication. As Psalm 1 says, the, the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But the wicked, the, the wicked will be swept away, but the righteous in Christ will stand on that day. And it says that they are wearing white robes. This is a clear symbol of their purity and their holiness. They are free from their sins. They are atoned for by the blood of Christ. We'll talk more about the robes in a moment. But they are pure. And only the perfectly pure can be in heaven. And it says they are holding palm branches in their hands. These palm branches in the ancient world were a symbol of military victory. And they were held by the populace. The population would hold it. When the returning conqueror would come and there would be a procession through the city and he would have a victorious parade and they would lay these palm branches down in front of the conquering king. And you know this is a very familiar image to us in the week before Jesus was crucified in the triumphal entry. This is exactly what the people are doing. Here is the coming king. Now in heaven they're holding the palm branches. And I, I think it's the sense in which just like the casting crowns image this is like the casting palm branches image. They have these palm branches and they are ready to give credit to Christ and to God for their salvation. Look at verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're giving credit, they're casting down these palm branches 
to the glory of God and of the, of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ. To God alone is the glory for their salvation. And this is the whole purpose of everything. This is the purpose of missions. That's worship. As John Piper said very plainly in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It will be obsolete. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So here in Revelation 7, that's what they're doing. They're, they're saying salvation belongs to God. They're praising Him. Giving full credit for their salvation. Now, at this present time, our world is sadly, tragically ripped apart by these kinds of divisions. Tribe, language, people, and nation. People are severed and ruptured and ripped along these distinctions. So many distinctions. Racial divisions. Ethnic divisions. National divisions. Socioeconomic divisions. Political divisions. Cultural divisions. Because in the wretched history of the human race, our sin nature has made it such that when we gain positions of power, we exploit the people that we rule. We exploit them and dominate them. And we hurt them and tyrannize them. And they remember that. And there is a memory of bitterness. And then when they have power, they turn and do the same. It's been going on all along. And there's so much bitterness. I've traced it out before. And the only remedy that there is, the only possible remedy is said for us in Ephesians chapter 2. That in Christ, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility is abolished. And the two are made one new man in Christ. The genuine unity that's brought about by the supernatural work of the gospel. That's the only answer to the divisions we see in our world today. This is the hope, not the United Nations, not diplomacy, not education, not social justice or any of these other things. However much they might help ease temporary sufferings on earth, and that is valuable, yet they will not bring about a genuine heart reconciliation between feuding peoples. But the gospel can, not only can it, it will. And so this multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation will be in perfect unity in heaven, loving one another. And worshiping Christ. How beautiful is that? So here's our encouragement. Because missions can be outwardly so discouraging. And seem so pathetically small. It always seems to be so unimpressive. And, and these missionaries are telling us of the small things that they're doing. And we're so encouraging. We're praying for them. And that's great. The International Mission Board. The IMB. We've got I guess under 4,000 missionaries now. 3,800 I think. I don't know the number. But they're just doing faithful work all over the world. Just like you saw in the video. And they're leading people to Christ and they're planting churches and the churches are small. And they're like little sparks and, and, you know, we're counting that the bruised reed, Christ will not break. And the smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. And he's able to blow those, those little sparks, that ember into a flame. And that, maybe that community, that town, that village can come to Christ. Some of the extended uh, people can come. That's what's going on all over the world. And if it weren't for the vision of Revelation 7, we think this whole thing is a colossal failure. Well, but it's not. We need to see it with eternal eyes. We need to see it with, with eyes of eternity, what God is actually doing. Keep this in mind. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, never loses a single one of his sheep. Never. So once you cross over from death to life, you'll never be lost to the good shepherd. He'll never lose you. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. You're like, wow, Pretty big then. If he hasn't lost anybody, it's only never takes a single backward step. Only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, exactly right. That's what's going on. Think about how Jesus proved the resurrection to the Sadducees. Remember that? They came and they said there's no resurrection. Jesus said, but about the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read in the account of the burning bush what God says to you? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're greatly mistaken. So what's he saying there? He said, I'm Abraham's God right now. If you could talk to Abraham right now, which you can't, but if you could, and you ask, who is your God? My God is the God who called me from Ur of the Chaldees. He is my God. You could have that conversation because he's still around. God didn't lose Abraham or Isaac or Jacob 
or let's start in the church age, from the day of Pentecost on, as people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and have crossed over from death to life, he hasn't lost a single one of them. Most of those people, except all those that are alive today, of course, they've died. And they're absent from the body, present with the Lord. He hasn't lost any of them. Not a single one. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. Isn't that awesome? Jesus said in John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He doesn't lose anyone. So it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The last winter that Christy and I were in Massachusetts, the winter of 92, 93, we went through five blizzards, major blizzards, starting somewhere in the middle of December. And then we just kept getting pounded. And I had to go out and shovel the driveway. And toward the end of that whole ordeal, like February, whatever, I had nowhere to put the snow. I was literally carrying it shovelful by shovelful, diagonally across to a vacant lot and dumping it there. And the walking back and getting another shovel. I had nowhere. It was like nine feet. Over. I couldn't see. Pulling out of my driveway was an adventure. Couldn't see left or right. I had to go out and look. Run to my car and then edge out. Go out and look some more. And then get out lest I get hit. That's a picture of this constant accumulation that's been going on for 20 centuries. Honestly, snow's looking really good to me right now. I mean, I like... I like being down here in the winter. I like the moderate temperatures, but I'm not big on 110 heat index like yesterday. So a little snow would be fine, but you can't control it. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. So it's this multitude greater than anyone is able to count. Now, I just want you to stop and picture, think in your mind, what is the largest assembly of people you've ever seen with your own eyes? I was talking to some of the guys this week, and somebody actually went to see a University of Michigan football game. They call it the Big House. And there's 100,000 people assembled to watch a college football game. I think that's probably bigger than most of your numbers. It's hard to see that number of people. If it's like in a city or by the river Ganges, like so many of these Hindu festivals are far bigger than that. But you can't see everyone all at once. They're blocked by buildings or, you know, whatever. This is a vast number. A vast number. Now, I don't know how many people have ever lived. 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 Where did that come from? I, I don't have any idea how many people who have ever been alive. But let's guess that in all of history, most people that have ever been alive are alive right now. Because of the populations going up like this. And so let's guess maybe there are 10 billion people that have ever lived. Jesus said that the ongoing work of those who find the gospel would be small, percentage-wise. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, very few but like an MIT engineer try to set that to statistics. What does that mean? Many versus only a few. Percentage-wise, what do you think? 80-20? 85-15? 90-10? Missiologists that are doing work all over the world, they say that they're probably 7% evangelicals in the world population, 7%. But let's imagine there have been, in the end, there will have been 10 billion people that have ever lived. And we'll bump it up to 10% to make the math easy. That's 1 billion people saved, redeemed. That's 10,000 University of Michigan football stadiums. That's a very impressive achievement for Christ and for God. That's what we're heading toward. And it's awesome. Now, in verse 11 and 12, the angels join the celebration. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the altar and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. I tell you, if one sinner converting sets off a celebration in heaven, how much more the final completion of that work. God's going to get the full credit. And the angels know this very well. And they know that only by the sovereign power and love and grace of God has this vast multitude from all over the world been redeemed. And they list the attributes. And they're not, when they're saying, may strength be to our God and 
power be to our God. They're not trying to give God anything. He's like a raging sun. And we're like going to give heat and light back to the sun. We're just ascribing what's true of him. This is just truly the God that has done this. Praise and glory and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and power be to the God who could do something like this. The angels are celebrating. Now look at verses 13 through 17 as we look at the rewards of the righteous. What do they get? And they get a a place of eternal worship, they get protection, and they get provision. Verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb, listen to this, the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, this part of the chapter begins with one of the elders. This is one of those interesting little moments in the book of Revelation where John has a conversation with somebody standing by. Sometimes it's an angel or a living creature or, you know, one of the elders. And he has these conversations. This time, however, the elder initiates with John. Yeah, this vast multitude, where do you think they came from? (laughs) It's amazing. But here's the interesting thing, and this is endlessly fascinating to me. And someday I hope to write a book about this about heavenly memories. Where they came from, what their stories are individually are interesting and worth telling. They trail with them and we're going to have a chance to recount them. And you're like, well, wait a minute now. There's a multitude greater than anyone could count. We're talking about a billion stories. Oh, far more than that. There's interconnections. There's spiritual dimensions of the story. There's all kinds of, oh, we're going to need time. Well, friends, we're going to have time. We're going to have all eternity to go back over what God did to save this multitude. So where did they come from? What is their story? Their cultural background has been uploaded and it's relevant, but just their story. How did they get here? Well, John gives a cagey answer. Sir, you know. (laughs) That's a good answer. Why don't you tell me? Etc. And I think it's amazing. You know, as we look at our stories, even the most painful aspects of our stories... We'll we'll tell them. Even the most shameful aspects of our story, it has to be told. I mean, because how could we tell the full story of, let's say, Saul of Tarsus without saying what he was before his conversion? And so we're going to, but no pain, no death, mourning, crying, and pain, no shame, no pain, no difficulty in the telling. Just a glorious telling of the story as it really was. And how God's grace saves sinners like us. It's going to be awesome. And so the elder tells the story. These are they that have come out of the great tribulation. They have escaped the great tribulation with their souls. They were shielded by God's power and their faith endured. Now, there are different strategies for reading the book of Revelation. Some read it uh, in a futurist sort of way. And and the approach uh, that they take is basically from Revelation 4 on, everything in those chapters is future, not just to John, but to us as well. And so this multitude is a yet future multitude of those who are not yet converted, but will someday be converted. And a lot of these folks point back to the 144,000 from every tribe, the Jews, and they are what they call tribulation saints that happen in that scheme of eschatology after the rapture. So the church is raptured, etc., and you've got no one left but the two witnesses. We'll get to them in chapter 11. And then they share the gospel. They win some Jewish converts. They go out and win tribulation saints. Well, that's possible. But I don't think it's the way you have to read Revelation 7. I think the key there is they're zeroing on the phrase, the great tribulation. And they say from Matthew 24, then there will be a great tribulation such as never been seen or nor ever will be again. So they're saying there is just kind of one great tribulation with that name and it happens in the last seven years of human history. But I think that's a little too restrictive for Revelation 7. I think instead this is a picture of the entire work of the gospel in redemptive history. And these are those that are going to be uh, redeemed. And they have all come out of a great tribulation. And I look at the great tribulation as not a switch. Like everything was just really awesome for the church of Jesus Christ. Then suddenly things got very bad in the last seven years. Friends, I hope you know that's not true. 
I hope you know that our brothers and sisters are suffering all over the world. And we ourselves are aliens and strangers. No, it's been tribulation all along. Not always equally difficult for everyone in all localities. But it's more like a dimmer switch of suffering. And then the last period of time under the final Antichrist, that tribulation is going to ramp up to such a great level it will be unbearable. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. That's the way I tend to read it. Not just as a futurist sort of way. So these are all, I think, all of the redeemed from all of human history who have come out of the suffering that the world of flesh and the devil put us through. Some more, some less. And it says of them, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This refers to both their positional holiness through faith in Christ. They were justified and they were made white. And if you're not made white in that sense by the blood of the Lamb, you cannot be there. All of us have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. We must be washed. Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no place with me. You must be washed by Jesus. And they have been washed and they've been made white. But it says they have washed their own robes and made them white in the blood. So I think that leads over to sanctification. There's an ongoing purification that we do. As it says in 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So there's this ongoing washing that we do to make our lifestyle line up with our position in Christ. That's who they are. In this way, they showed themselves to be genuine Christians. And their stories are going to share their stories and we're going to be interested. You know, this is the whole thing. Like, I don't know that I want to sit through infinite testimony night. Well, let me, let me just say, you know, like campfire testimony. Is it my turn? You're coming up in 10,433 years. Hang in there. Get your story ready. And then it'll be your turn. Your moment in the spotlight. And we'll all listen to you. All one billion of us. I don't think that's how you should think of it. But let's, let's put it this way. You will be so greatly transformed in heaven. That even if that were what would happen, you would be all over it. You'd be delighted. You couldn't wait to hear this brother or this sister's story. You would be totally focused. Why? Because it's the glory of your Savior. It doesn't matter whether it's your story or someone else. It's still Jesus that saved them. And you want to hear how Jesus was glorious in this person's life. And that person's life. And the other person's life. You're going to be so filled with charity, with love for those people that you're going to be saying, oh, tell me your story. And you'll, you'll be into it. When I was at my last IMB trustee meeting, they gave us two sheets to report um, the progress of the work in 2016. And one of them was numerics. It was the number of people that had, uh, the gospel presentations they'd done, 1.9 million approximately. The number of people who had come to faith in Christ, 175,290 was the total. 93,922 had been water baptized, et cetera. Churches planted, et cetera. Just numbers. But then the other sheet, was very short vignettes and stories. And I'm like, oh man, I love that sheet. I like, I, both of them are interesting to me, but I love that sheet. So these stories, they're stripped down of details to the point they're almost like light pale reflections of the true story. I want the real robust red-blooded story. But we can't do that because a lot of these people are in very dangerous places. So they strip them down, but there's still, the, there's a glory that shines through in a filtered sort of way. So like this one. Saigon, Vietnam. Through the work of a college team, they met a young woman named Spring. The Lord brought her to faith in Christ, and I'm happy to report this morning she's being baptized. Or this one. Here in a tribal region in India, we have started a reproducible theological training among local church leaders, enabling their churches to stand firm under increasing government pressure. Or this one. In Malawi, I love this one. Three village elders camped Three days by the side of the road, hoping to meet us. Stopping us, they asked, are you the people that are bringing the message of God to the surrounding villages? Our village has no God. Will you please bring the message of God to our village? They camped for three days to meet them. Or this one. On the northwest coast of Ecuador, the gospel is being shared with a fisherman. His wife was baptized last year, and we're trusting God that as Bible studies are being held in his home... He will also come to Christ. There's just one fisherman they're trying to reach with Christ. For Christ. And then listen to this one. This will be very familiar to us. Amazing access to the many refugees coming through Athens, Greece, and national partners leading Iranians and Afghans to faith in Christ and then discipling them one at a time and also in small groups. I mean, these folks would have been absolutely 
maybe almost impossible to reach. But because of their being refugees, they're able to listen and hear the gospel. Listen, I can't wait to hear the full stories of this multitude. We'll have eternities. Look at their, their eternity to hear them. Look at their rewards. First, they get access to God and continual opportunity to worship Him. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him. That means worship Him night and day in His temple. So the night and day in his temple is earthly language that just helps us understand. There's not night or day experiences up in heaven. But it's like continual worship of God is their reward. Also, they have protection. Look at verse 15 and 16. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. So this is a picture of sovereign protection by God uh, of all the sufferings that people can experience. Even just the sufferings of climate, like 110 degree heat index days, things like that. They're not going to experience that scorching heat. And the spreading of a garment over is like a picture of husbandly love, like, a, like um, betrothing love. Like in the book of Ruth, remember how she asks Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. Marry me, she's saying, for you are my kinsman redeemer. And Boaz himself, joyful at that, said in the previous uh, chapter, may you be richly rewarded. He says to Ruth, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have now taken refuge. So Psalm 36, 7 and 8 says, how priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find, listen to this, refuge under the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. That's heaven, friends. Refuge, protection, and provision. Look what he says in verse 17. They're free from hunger, thirst, heat. Nothing can harm them. Verse 17. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away Every tear from their eyes. Do not miss the significance of the lamb at the center of the throne. This is the deity of Christ again alluded to. He is almighty God. He is their good shepherd. He is not only the lamb who died for them. He is their good shepherd who will lead them, provide for them, protect them. And at some point, he's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. And there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And you'll live with him forever. All right, so what applications can we take from this? Well, first, obviously, come to Christ. I prayed this morning as I was practicing the sermon. I said, oh, God, please bring some people here today who are outside of Christ and need to hear the gospel. And you've heard the gospel. But I'll say it again very, very clearly. God, almighty God, who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us laws by which we are to live our lives, who is offended at our sins and who is going to bring a fiery wrath on the earth because he is offended by those sins, is offering to us sinners amnesty, forgiveness through faith in Christ. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. No works needed, no works welcomed. Just trust in him and all your sins will be forgiven and you will be, your robes will be instantly washed and made white from all of your sins. Come to Christ and trust in him. He is the only refuge. There is a hurricane of wrath coming. You're deceived if you think there isn't. There is one and only one refuge. Come to Christ. Secondly, I just say to Christians, delight in that refuge. Celebrate it. Celebrate it. Thank God you fled to Jesus. I was talking to my daughter about this uh, the, the other day. Romans uh, 6, 17 says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. I preached a sermon on that text once entitled, Thank God You Obeyed. Think about that. That will blow your brain up the more you think about it. Thank God you obeyed the gospel. So just thank God you fled to Jesus for refuge. Just give him full credit. Give him full honor for your salvation. Say salvation belongs to our God. Just celebrate it. And, and just delight in that. And be humbled at how God-centered they are in heaven. So stop all your boasting. Don't boast about your works. Don't boast about your intelligence. Don't boast about your money or your achievements. Don't boast about anything. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God. 
Fourthly, delight in the multi-ethnic diversity of heaven. I'm not talking about diversity the way that some people are defining it these, day, these days in order to deal with the guilt of their unbiblical, sinful lifestyles. I'm not talking about that kind of diversity. I'm talking about amoral diversity that God has woven into the genetic complexity of the human race and all the cultures that have flowed from that. Celebrate that God delights in that is going to redeem people from each one of those. And we're going to retain those diverse elements in heaven. Just delight in that. And fifthly, be encouraged about missions and evangelism. It's going to work. You're like, well, pastor, I've shared and shared and shared. No one's ever come to Christ. Share again. Go out and share the gospel again with a co-worker. Talk to somebody in Durham. Just grab somebody uh, by, on the street. Talk to the elder about different outreaches that are going on. Their outreaches go on on Wednesday night. People go out on Friday nights. People are doing international connection ministry. We have lots of opportunities to do evangelism. But I just want to say, big picture, it's going to work. We're going to win. The elect are all going to get converted. So praise God. And so that leads finally, commit yourself to missions. Commit yourself again to pray for missionaries that you know about. When missionaries like the Moggers come, be there to encourage them and pray for them and tell them you love them and that, you know, energize them. I'm going this week to Bulgaria to meet with some missionaries and to pray for them and encourage them and to preach to them. And my desire is they go home more energized and ready than ever before to serve God. So pray, give, go. Those are the commands that we always have. But just let's care about missions because it's going to work. Just close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had to study your word today. We thank you for the beauty of the word. We thank you for the things that we've learned. And thank you for the the final success that we're going to see of the gospel. We look forward to seeing that with our own eyes. And to being part of it as we, as missionaries, share the gospel. As evangelists, we share with people in our own culture. Lord, please give us fruitfulness. Give us faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.